Hey, it's Bao, and thanks for joining me for Coffee with Bao. This is a series where I chat with people who are doing really cool stuff in business, music, entertainment, pop culture, and more. And specifically, I like to focus on their creative process, their cultural identity, and their personal growth. And、uh, since this is still an early episode of my show, I'd really love your feedback on what's working and what could use some work. So you can contact me at coffeewithbao.com. So let's meet our guest. Today I'm hanging out with a fellow Asian American performance artist. She's also a comedian, actress, writer, and elected official in Koreatown in Los Angeles. She's performed her original shows at dozens, if not hundreds, of venues across the world. And she just wrapped up a one woman show called Christina Wong for Public Office. And is currently doing a show called Christina Wong Sweatshop Overlord. Here's my new and hilariously smart friend, Christina Wong. Pshha! Christina! Hello! Bow. Hello, my Hello, fellow America. Americans. <laughs> Hello, America, my fellow Americans. I don't think I've had an entrance this good. Let me come up、good. and talk to you for an hour. I guarantee you have not. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me from all the way three and a half miles away in Koreatown. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know you lived in the same city, so you had no excuses for missing my shows this entire time. <laughs> oh man, I had like painted this picture that you were in the Pacific Northwest or something. Um, so <laughs> cool! Are. You are a like Koreatown for the last over a decade or something. Is that right? I've been living here for yeah, I cannot believe it. Ten years, yes. And the neighborhood has changed so much. I actually was convinced this neighborhood would never gentrify when I first moved in. I was like, if it gentrifies, it'll gentrify K-pop. It like won't gentrify white, but it is. Becoming increasingly expensive to live here, and the folks who used to live here can't afford to live here anymore. Yeah.、So. Um, do you still serve on the neighborhood council? I do. My term is until April. I'm sort of like struggling with whether or not to run again because it is such tedious work, but it is really necessary work. Well, because at the end of the day, you know, you can protest all you want and write lots of books, but someone, someone in some room needs to pull a lever. Yeah, I was gonna say the neighborhood benefits from having you there because you actually give a crap about <laughs> real people. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not the most organized person. I admit that, and and、uh, yeah, so there's still things I just don't. Understand, or like, I don't think I should chair a committee because I just don't have it together to put together an agenda or、uh, submit a piece of paper to the city. Like, there's just there is so much work that's unpaid, and it doesn't function because we lose a lot of our elected members because they have to, you know, they have families to take care of, they have jobs. They get disenchanted by how much work this is for no money for for this much effect, and and so it's not. It it, beca- it can be a very discouraging system. People are like, "This chick is a comedian. What? <laughs> She's talking about running for、yeah. office. It's really cool." And your show actually got、yeah. me emotional at the end when you were like really passionate about. Oh, good.、Life. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't own the recording. Center and Center Theater Group only ran it for thirty days, so I'm going to try to figure out with them. Well, what are the options to continue to air it or like? I'm talking to a few venues about performing it again from my home.、Um, You also came to LA to go to school, right? Be- before just being a 
LA I, yeah, I, I grew up in San Francisco and I went to UCLA. I was like, I'm going to give it a couple years here. A couple turned into four, four turned into eight, eight turned into 16. Yeah. Now I'm still here 20 years later. <laughs> That's so I, cool. I, 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 I don't know. We, we all benefit <laughs> from having you in town. So I, I'm, gl- I'm glad you're here. Um, oh, thanks. You, had your family been in the Bay Area for ages? I mean, do you know your family history yes, about coming yes, to that's the where Bay they, Area? Yes. So my, my grandparents on both sides um, were immigrants from Hong Kong and southern China and Toy Sod in China. And uh, on one side, my family hold, uh, owned a laundry um, in the Richmond district. On the other, they owned a butcher shop. Oh, cool. So, I mean, it was true, like... Chinese San Francisco stories of immigration. And I don't think they ever dreamed that they'd have a granddaughter who maybe became an elected official, but not an unpaid one, performing in front of a set that she sewed herself. Um. <laughs> That's so funny, because I was going to ask, like, I-, I read that your parents had pretty normal jobs in, like, finance or um, yeah. sales and stuff. Yeah, how do they Insurance, feel about like your super conservative jobs? That's all. That's a whole other interview. Um, how do they feel about this? They're very supportive now because I can support myself with this. But the, I mean, the years out of school, I was just like, I didn't really feel like I was an adult until I was twenty-eight when I was finally able to just kind of make a living and not scramble for twenty dollars. But like, I finally kind of got into a rhythm where I figured out how to tour my work and. I mean, I remember in my most panic moment, I must have been like 24. At that point, my insurance premium was only $100 a month. Now, (laughs) anyway, I remember having to drive to my friend in West Hollywood to borrow $100 to pay off that premium, right? God, that's crazy. Yeah, and I think at one point, also at that point, I, I was getting charged to have my own checking account, like $25, because I just didn't have enough of yeah, a balance. Yeah, yeah, those were the days. <laughs> and now I, I, I can't even, I cannot even fathom that that was me at one point. And, uh, but I'm witnessing friends of mine who are still in that situation. And, and no, I, I feel very lucky that I figured myself a way out of that, but it was a lot of work. It was so hard. I remember my, I just felt like I didn't go back to San Francisco to be around my family because I wanted to pursue this. And I knew if I lived in the same city, it would just be constant nagging from them. So part of me staying in LA where I had to pay rent and be a little bit more isolated was trying to carve out this identity as an artist. Yeah, I have lots of questions about that because that, you know, you really chart your own path. Um, But I want to know a little bit about like just growing up, was was growing up Chinese American like a big part of your... Well, I think think it's more being third generation Chinese American and, and being read by the world as whatever this... Chinese face reeks uh, to the yeah. world. Like I don't have immigrant parents, right? Like I don't, um, but I have immigrant grandparents and I yeah. definitely can empathize with that experience, but, I, but I'm not fluent in Chinese. And I think, you know, one, the guilt of not being Chinese enough definitely followed me. Not being able to have conversations with my grandmother was definitely a source of guilt. Like when people talk about like calling their grandma and talking for an hour, I'm like, I have no idea what that's like. And the conversations I do have are so perfunctory with my grandmother, right? They're so like, I, I can't get into big deep stories. She doesn't want to talk about her history. She says she, she claims that to not remember anything. I think it's just painful or she maybe, yeah. maybe it is just age and she doesn't remember. So, I mean, I think a lot of that kind of guilt and pain followed me. And I think when I'd be hanging out with like, my not Chinese friends. I remember like being out like late at night as a teenager, 
like sneaking out <laughs> and having like all this guilt about my grandmother who's like asleep in her bed, but like, you know, just feel like I'm being so bad. I'm being so bad. Like I'm such a shame. I'm such a shame. And I, I don't feel like anyone else carry that guilt. I don't know. Like I just had a lot of guilt around what I wasn't holding on to. And yeah, and, that uh, makes sense. How distant I was being from them. And I mean, this is why making my own work was so freeing because like the options for what I could portray as an Asian artist, if someone wrote me a part, it would probably be limited to what my race would perform. And that was a very, also very limiting and not necessarily my own experience. Right. So it might be something that requires me to have an accent or be bilingual in that role. And I was none of those things. And it's interesting now I play colleges. I mean, I was before the pandemic, right? And I, I'm yeah. now meeting this whole new generation of Chinese American students who were born in China, but adopted by white parents here. I've, I've had a few conversations with them, you know, not not like at large, but enough that I've noticed that, oh, now those the kids are in college and they're really working out a lot of stuff right now because it's like their first time encountering an Asian American student group and yeah. Asian American kind of culture. Right. And, and having to think about, well, uh, what is, you know, what is my relationship to being Chinese? And they actually seem to at least communicate to me. They identify with a lot of what I'm describing, right? Like inside, outside, inside, outside. That's really interesting. And I, I really love how every Asian American story is so different. And like our, our, all of our experiences yeah. are so diverse. Yeah. It's really cool. Uh, as a kid, did you like do theater stuff? Were you like a performer as a youngster? Okay. Well, here's this crazy story. <laughs> I'm excited. So, so before I was, all right. So before I got into theater, I was really into prank calling. Which I would like to say is like my earliest performance art. And that prank calling got went way too far. I, I had these like two white hippie friends in middle school and we went through the recycling bin and we found like this whole printout of everybody's phone numbers like all their parents and we just sort of call and just talk to them. And there was like this one Asian girl was my neighbor and she was my friend at one point. But then see, this is an interesting thing about San Francisco public schools. Fobs were not the way fobs I think are thought of in a general nerdy sense. Like, could you pick up like fobs were like gangsters. Oh, interesting. Um, like the group <laughs> that we refer to as like, they were maybe immigrants or had recent immigrant parents and they were Vietnamese and Chinese, but they were gangsters. They smoked cigarettes. They wore bum equipment, oversized sweatshirts and leather jackets and had spiked hair and pump bangs and they cut what? glass. That's awesome. <laughs> so, so when I got to college, UCLA and like, it was like introduced to all this sort of Asian American narrative and stuff. And, and fobs were like this other thing, like kids you make fun of who were like the only Asian kid in their white school. And it's like, I don't know what that, that was like, right. Because there was, we had just so many, so many Asians, right. In, in San Francisco. So, so there was this one girl named Jennifer who was, she lived a few blocks away. She was my friend. And then she suddenly decided like, she wasn't, but she just was cutting class constantly. And I remember calling her, pretending to be an administrator from the school, saying, we're going to kick you out <laughs> That's messed if you don't up. come back to class. But yeah, I, I just like, I remember having this whole long intervention and she actually seemed quite concerned that she, which is weird because <laughs> it's like, if you were really concerned, you would just go to school. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it got crazy. But the crazier part was um, someone who was like a super A student. Like, this is the thing. This is how I understand uh, being Chinese American in San Francisco is like you're living two lives like like these Asian Americans who are like super academic and high achieving but like on the flip end when they're not being watched by their parents are like you know getting into all sorts of trouble and that was like totally me is like this like a student in middle school like found this number 
uh, it was called the Nightline, and it still exists. And it's a, it's it's a basically it was early like phone Tinder, where like you would you could hook up with people live on the phone and be connected to them through the system. And there was like saxophone music. Welcome to the nightline, San Francisco's hottest way <laughs> of in the singles world or like whatever. And, and, and you would record a voice profile that would be live. Like, hi guys. Um, I'm bow. Uh, I'm uh, 21 years old. I'm a cheerleader for the San Francisco 49ers, big breasts and blonde hair. And just want to know who's out there to chat tonight. But basically what this turned into was like this, very popular, as I find out later, sleepover activity for girls to basically be catfishing and having terrible phone sex with all the loneliest men of the Bay Area. But that was my early acting bow. Was, <laughs> that was your training? <laughs> was was being divorced from my face, right? And my age and everything and my race and getting to like play all these characters and feel like super powerful. The worst thing we did was we would basically, in these crank calls, we would be like, I can't wait to meet you. This is my address. And we'd give them an address of a boy oh, no. from middle school. <laughs> yeah, so these crazy. perverts were like showing up at people's houses. I mean, this is terrible that we did this. But so like, don't sleep on Chinese people, man. We, <laughs> we will we'll, we'll get all the A's and we'll, we'll send people to your We'll send perverts to your house. But anyway, yeah. That, so you asked my earliest performance art experience. That was basically that's really it. interesting because I can see that. But then in. I began to use it more constructively. But when you don't have a middle school after school theater program, that's what you end up doing with your. Yeah, totally. With your time and energy. I, I was going to say, I can see how that channeled into your, your final project at school where you um, started a kind of a mail order bride website. Yes. Uh, can you talk I about that? Because that's like, interesting. I've been doing the same. Yes. Yes, I'm glad you made that connection, right? It's like that I've been basically pranking people for the last <laughs> years. Um, so in college, I was an English and world arts and cultures major. I was like, what the hell am I going to do when I grow up? Like, what am I going to do when I get out of here? I don't, people were interviewing for like Deloitte and Touche, like they were recruiting. And I'm like, I don't even know. Like, and I was, ex I had multiple people. I'd be like, what is a consultant? I don't understand what it is that this job is that you're all yeah. interviewing for. And I, I knew I just wanted to be, an artist, but I was like, how does this work? In the department, I graduated from English and World Arts and Cultures. So World Arts and Cultures, you could do any senior project. And at that time, most people would be, they'd do performance, maybe 20 people would show up and that was their senior project. And I was like, I want it to last longer. And I had been reflecting on how, when I was trying to do research for an Asian American women's class online, I just kept stumbling into web, porn websites. And I'm like, like, my heart would just like shatter and uh, yeah. go, oh my God, <laughs> I just, <laughs> this is so, un this is like, I, cause I hadn't actually looked at that many actual images. It's like, it was hard to look at images of people having sex, especially Asian women having sex. And I was wrestling with like how to be open with my own body and stuff. And that is a terrible way to learn looking at images of <laughs> violent yeah, pornography totally. made for white eyes. Jeez. Right. But anyway, I was just like, I know, I'll, I'll trick audiences looking for pornography to look at me. And that was a crazy thing, right? To, to actually like put my own face and my friends' faces in the stream of, of, you know, dudes looking for porn and purposely angering them. But it was also a really intriguing concept to me in terms of how to get an audience. And, and it was like this became something that I began to follow this train of thought, like how to trap an audience 
So um, that was that was intense because I got a lot of hate mail. Even my own friends didn't understand it. They were like, you hate white people. And I was like, what? Wait, no, that I'm a little bit deeper than that. Um, <laughs> just, but just a little, just a little. Um, yeah, so that was that was crazy. So I went from there to like retreating back into the theater where I could do more nuance or because like if all your work and all your art is done that publicly for people who who are not your audience and not going to embrace or care about the nuance, it's going to be really frustrating, right? To find yourself and feel confident in what you actually have to say. But for the most part, my theater work is for people who aren't going to have the same immediate, like, fuck you, communist kind of reactions that I get from my, you know, short web work, right? Or from, from trolls on Twitter. Yeah, got it. Um, so after school, you got a pretty big boost from the Creative Capital um, grant or fellowship. Yes. Oh, you've done your research. Wow, I'm so Girl. proud of you. And that me, allowed some of these, some you... Some interviews I do, I'm just like, what are these questions? Like, <laughs> oh my God. No, because it's really uh, fascinating like, like that... I, but, okay, go ahead. Yes, I got yeah. a huge boost from the Creative Capital. Uh, you got a huge boost. And that's, that's when I began to feel like an adult. Yeah, and yeah. you did Wong Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest for years, right? Like a, a lot of years. Years. on it. I mean, not every day, but it was like on and off for eight years. And the thing people don't understand is when you hold on to a live show, it's in your bones, it's in your body, it's in your brain. It takes up real estate in your life, right? And, yeah. you know, it was hard because I, I finally was making a healthy living as an artist where I could actually donate money to other causes and, and not be freaked out um, at the end of the month where my paycheck or whatever, like where, you know, where my livelihood was coming from. However, I was becoming dependent on the show. And I began to, I began to be really fascinated in people who are also stuck in loops in their life in play, in terms of playing themselves. So it's not that I was interested so much in watching pornography, but like, but like trying to understand how porn stars retire and move on to the next thing when their own bodies and their lives are so exposed in a specific way. Yeah. And how do you how with no work history do you move on to the next thing? Reality television stars who completely humiliated themselves. So I was really interested in like the reality TV stars from um, Flavor of Love and like all those shows that were they had like completely humiliated themselves in public. And it's like, well, how do they move on? Like, cause I was really just that lost. Like, how do I, with no work, work history, do I go to graduate school? Like, what do I do? Um, and it was ugly. It was an ugly transition out. But now I think I'm I'm okay. I could tell you what to do if you were in my position. You know, I feel you because I I had I did my project Ming and Ping for over a decade, and uh, you're right. It totally occupies your person forever. Yeah. And um, you it's it, you require some sort of like detox to kind of move on. It's it's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. And I I was like, do I move cities? Like, do I? what do I do? And I just, I think I just bought my home. So it was also like, oh, I just bought a home. Do I like now leave it? Like <laughs> I just didn't, I wasn't sure what to do. Um, so I just kept touring it. But then I eventually began to make new work. And then finally I went to Uganda. And, oh, what? Um, <laughs> oh, th yeah, that was the Wall Street Journal. That was, so, so that was oh, yeah. for that particular show. I was like, I was like, you know what? I'm going to volunteer for a month. And I had thought it was going to be a show about microloans or poverty, right? Like I didn't actually think what was, which is what, this is what happened is when I got there to Northern Uganda, where the site of a civil war, I went around um, looking for food one night. Uh, I was like, I'm not going to just hang out inside this hotel, like a scared Westerner. 
and I met these guys in front of a food stand. They invited me into this dark room. Uh, this sounds like a terrible nightmare. It was a music studio and we recorded a hit rap album. So I spent the rest of my time in Northern Uganda. Like I'd go volunteer in the day and that night would go work on music with these guys. A recording studio. <laughs> and at, Yes, it was a recording studio and, uh, and the songs now play on the radio. And I went back five years later and shot music videos to go with those songs. And it was a long time, like five years, but you know, it's hard to like just get up and go over to Uganda. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, but I did a whole show, which is really kind of, you know, it sounds like a really funny romantic, whatever. But I, uh, when I came back, I was like, oh, I can't do this show about going to Uganda without acknowledging the politics of what does it mean for me as an Asian American yeah. to be showing up in another community of color from the position of power. And like, that's really what the show is about is how, and, and I think around that time, that's when the hashtag black lives matter um, was emerging. And so a lot of that conversation was out there. And it's like, if I just tell the story, I'll just sound like every other white person doing a save the children commercial. And it's not to say that those dynamics were not part of this trip, but I have, a, I'm in a position to maybe uh, address this with a little bit more um, nuance. Yeah. So that was a really useful I, I like I, I you know when you do a project and you're like okay I can die now like when I hit did that rap album as cheesy corny whatever this album was I was like I could die now I, like, so I had cool. the craziest experience that no one else can say they had um, but anyway yeah but but it taught me that from from that point forward I want to learn about new things with each show not just mine my pain and my past yeah totally and that makes total sense and it it's such a good progression of your career and your person too just as a human being I've only been following your career for a couple of years but like to read about you and and go way further back uh, it's really cool to see how every piece documents your growth as a human. It's really, really interesting. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Bao. So the next step was, well, sort of a, a few steps in between, but the next step was running for office and making a show out of it. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah, I, I uh, was courting reality. I'm, you know, I'm fascinated with reality television. And for years, uh, I, I've, I've always wanted to hack that format, but I'm, I watch it and I'm like, that seems, it just seems so abusive to like move into a house of girls to fight for someone's love or, so anyway, uh, the point is I, <laughs> I love reality TV as much as I'm like just fascinated with it and, <laughs> and, and because it feels like terrible performance art, but with no social commentary, right? <laughs> and I've been wanting to figure out how to hack that format. And so um, my whole dream was to like have this reality TV show, which would have been Nathan for you meets Michael Moore. And nothing made sense uh, once uh, it was time to shoot, which was when Trump took office. Because me at my worst was actually giving more fire to the people who I was trying to not empower, yeah. right? Like I thought, oh, we're, we all live in a world where we can laugh at an activist who behaves this way. But instead, what became very clear is like, oh, wait, there's this whole, whole other half of the world who will see the this show and, and actually believe that all Chinese people are this naive or believe that yeah. all activists are this stupid and uh, don't think shit through. So yeah, so when that TV show didn't get picked up and also the whole process of trying to shoot that show, I was just like having a lot of moments where I was just like, I don't feel good about this, <laughs> but I'm just going to keep running with this. I need this to happen. And then I was just sort of left on my butt going, what the fuck do we do? Um, and the answer just one day came to me. 
you're going to run for office because that's the ultimate hack, right? Is to insert yourself into the system that you're trying to change. Yeah, it's really well written, that show, the the way that it kind of takes you. you full I circle. I, I, thank you. I, yeah. I'll take that. Yes. Well done. I, uh, <laughs> and it was, it was sort of like happening. The, the reality was I, I was elected and I was like, okay, I'm going to do a show on this. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. And I'd sit through these three and a half hour long meetings and I was just like, what should I do? A sh- what? But yeah, I sat along enough and just sort of listened and kind of, you know, th- th- thought about like, well, what's interesting. And we had a couple of votes that were super interesting and that's, that's what what you're hearing that made it into the show. But it is a lot of otherwise really tedious voting. Yeah, like formalities. The, right? the story I think you're referencing is when we, uh, Angie, Angie's my neighbor who got me. Uh, Your Emmy Award winning neighbor? By feeding, yes, my Emmy Award winning reality TV show producer friend, Angie, who I know from having made a reality TV <laughs> That's and, awesome. uh, on mix with her. Um, she gave me an edible because I was really upset that Alex Jones and his people were trolling me. And I got so fucking high when I woke up, I was on a ballot. <laughs> so anyway, so Angie and I, we, we put uh, together um, a community impact statement to abolish ICE. And I was actually not sure if our neighborhood would get behind it. I didn't know if it was going to be too radical for them. And it's, you know, purely symbolic. Like we can't keep ice out of the neighborhood. It's a federal agency. Right. But it, it's a huge thing for us to publicly say and to file that, that point of view, you know, the city clerk that we don't want them there. And that was like the most emotional meeting uh, we've ever had. I was sobbing. I was the only one sobbing. <laughs> People were actually at risk of being deported. They were emotional too, but they weren't like, I mean, for me, cause I just was, I really realized like, if we don't pass this, I don't want to be on this board. Like I'm not here to just pass um, liquor licenses or whatever all day. Right. Like I'm, I'm here to affect real actual change. So yes. I was just so moved when the people on my board who otherwise hate the homeless uh, <laughs> voted in favor of abolishing ICE. I was, you know, I was just really stunned because I thought it was going to be a lot harder of a fight. Yeah. So you just finished a month of broadcasting that show via the internet because of COVID. And now you're yes. starting a new... Center Theater Group filmed it. Shout out to Center Theater Group. Yes. Thank you for that. And now because of COVID, you're launching your new show also online. Um, can you give us like a pitch for Christina Wong? Sweatshop oh, Overlord? Totally. So at the start of this pandemic in March, I was not touring anymore. I had a whole national tour that was postponed. Um, as you see behind me, I sew all my set pieces. I sew my props and my sets. I've never sewn medical equipment before. However, and I and I had heard that there was a need at hospitals and among essential workers and frontline workers for masks. There was a there was a run on masks and, and nurses were going to the hospital with bandanas tied around their faces. And I was like, well, I'm not a nurse, but I can save a nurse. So I got in my Hello Kitty sewing machine and I began to sew masks. <laughs> I began to offer out to the Internet. I can help you. I can give you a mask if you need. I uh, was deluged immediately with more requests than I could sew for. I started a group called the Auntie Sewing Squad on Facebook. It was supposed to just be a three to four week stopgap until the factory made masks got, you know, off the cargo ship from China, got here. Uh, We are now into the eighth or ninth month of this pandemic. We are still sewing masks at this point for very vulnerable communities, frontline workers, 
sorry, farm workers who are frontline workers, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, indigenous communities, incarcerated communities, migrants waiting for asylum at the border, basically filling the hole that systemic racism has left. And Christina Wong's Sweatshop Overlord is basically about how in the first 10 days of the pandemic and, and, and basically chronicles up until now, uh, I found myself going from out-of-work artist to basically the, this overlord of this volunteer empire. So my <laughs> yes. sweatshop of aunties is it's a basically a national network of hundreds of aunties. It actually grew. I, I was joking that I was a sweatshop overlord because the first volunteers were all Chinese um, and Asian. And I was like, what's that about? Because we were like, and, and as it turns out, a lot of us have parents or grandparents, like my grandparents in the laundry business who, who worked in garment industries uh, as a rite of passage into America. And uh, I was just sort of like, oh my God, what is this terrible ancestral destiny that has happened? Where, <laughs> where like Gold Mountain failed us. And now here I am, the college educated granddaughter, like sewing masks out of old bed sheets and conference lanyards so that a nurse doesn't die. Like what, what the hell, what the hell? We're not all Asian women at this point. Now I, it's gotten so ridiculous that I now order white grandmas around and have them so for me. But we are like this amazing network of radical care. And I think it's an interesting, like uh, some of the aunties have watched it have told me, it's like, oh, this is like the best retelling of the pandemic because it's like through the lens of someone who's literally like in her home running a shadow FEMA. Totally. Uh, like trying to just trying to find the materials like I just fell deeper and deeper and deeper into it if you told me on the middle of March eight months later if you if you do this Christina you will still be sewing you'll be doing relief <laughs> vamps and standing rock and to the Navajo Nation you will be sending emergency supplies to elders in a rural village in Alaska who can't get their shipment that's stuck in a FedEx holding facility I'd be like no I'm not doing it then but I just, we just kept slipping deeper and deeper, deeper in. It exploded. And we were, we were like on Good Morning America, CNN, NBC, Washington Post, right? We have a book deal. Uh, we That's have a, a musical so co crazy. collaboration with the Kronos Quartet. Like it, it just, I'm doing an interview with Rebecca Solnit today for a virtual conference called Critical Auntie Studies, which, <laughs> <laughs> which I didn't know was a thing, but there are these academics who write about the, the archetype of the auntie, and apparently what we do fits right into it. So yeah, I, I would trade this all in for this not to have to be an issue at all. Like I've just never seen my career explode like this during a pandemic. Um, but that's what this show is, is it's, it's sort of like recounting all of this and, yeah. and a lot of frustration and, and it's still, being written as we keep going along. Yeah, what a crazy phenomenon, huh? Um, I'm gonna show a little image. So of ridiculous. Your uh, your promo image. Okay. <laughs> Christina Wong, Sweatshop Overlord, uh, is Christina's new show. You can find Christina at ChristinaWong.com, and that's Christina with a K for everyone who's listening to this without the image. ChristinaWong.com. Let's take a little break. Hey, friends. Not sure if you know this, but I serve on the board of a nonprofit called the Slants Foundation. We're a volunteer-driven organization that provides resources, scholarships, and mentorship to Asian American creatives looking to incorporate activism into their art. We also produce events that feature these talented creators. Our last virtual concert helped over 500 people register to vote for the very first time. You can learn about and support the Slants Foundation by visiting theslants.org. Thanks, and see you soon. Let's get back to the show. 
and um, it looks like you always kind of return to the same themes in your work about you know ra social justice, racial identity, maybe gender even like gender equality. Um, have you always kind of been interested in that, or was that something you developed over no. working? I didn't care. Um, no. <laughs> but interesting. You know interesting with the sweatshop overlord thing. When I was sewing masks in March, it really was an all health matters thing. Like it was just uh -huh. like I would. I just wanted to make it forever because uh, you know the logic, which is real life. Like if you can protect one person, that means you protect all the people around them in their bubble. But very quickly, things got political. Like I didn't think this was going to be a political thing. I didn't know that Trump was going to make it a partisan thing to wear masks, but I keep stumbling upon these things. Like I, I naively, I'm like, I'm just going to sew masks. But it became very evident that some people had access to masks that others did it. Right. And, and it would make sense as a group to put your efforts towards the people who aren't getting it, not to everyone at large, but yes, like very quickly, we have found ourselves really upset and critical of the government's response to this. We found ourselves sewing for these communities that basically like almost stand in the face of this current administration, right? Like uh, incarcerated communities, migrants at the borders, people trying to get out the vote in Georgia. That's a big community, BLM. So it's, it's just so weird how like that seems to happen with everything I do is it's just sort of like, hey, now. I just want to help you. And then, you, and then you begin to do calculations and go, wait, I need to be strategic. And why yeah. do I have to be strategic? Oh, because <laughs> this is the population that's really left and really in dire straits. Isn't that like pretty exhilarating to kind of react on your toes to the reality of your work affects real life. It's not just like in this isolated art thing, you know, and um, to, to react to everything, uh, it must be like kind of freaky, <laughs> but like exhilarating and fun at the same time. I would say the last two shows, which is Christina Wong for Public Office and Christina Wong's Sweatshop Overlord, definitely feel like they react the most to this present moment. Well, especially Sweatshop Overlord. I just, at one point we were trying to figure out how to get a possible donation, which actually fell through of hand sanitizer from Fresno to the Navajo Nation. And we were pricing out like pallet shipping. Yeah. And I was... I just had to take a moment on this phone call and my, my like second in command is, is Amy Tofty, who's a screenwriter who I met on a ride share. And then I totally sucked her into this and we were just had to go, wait, what are we doing? We are trying to get hand sanitizer, the Navajo nation. Is FEMA doing this right now? Like, you know, we're just, we're just like stunned how close we're, we are to this whole situation and how, just how deep we got into this. It's thrilling, but not in a great way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it feels like, oh, this is what it means to really boots on the ground. But honestly, you know, there was a time where I didn't want to do political work, where I was exhausted with the responsibility of it. But I like, I, I think that we have to recognize that our work, that culture is responding to a moment, right? And and, and a, a non-response is a certain kind of apathy, like a yeah, purposeful apathy, apathy that's out there. Um, I, I heard a great thing that's like, just because it's, a, a play in a theater with an all-white cast, you know, the absence of people of color on that stage still makes it about race. The, yeah. the fact that it's a white family, it's still about race. And, and that we have to think about, like, yeah, that, that, that everything has some sort of political significance, some more overt than others. Yeah, wow. You should feel really good that your work has so much meaning and impact on, on real life, regular life. And um, it feels like you've been really 
successful at charting your own path like I said before like just creating your medium rather than trying to like fit into an existing medium um, and I wonder what made you realize that you needed to like just invent this stuff rather than try to wedge yourself into an existing medium or format I was a terrible auditioner I still don't book like if if my <laughs> if my artistic voice would only be realized through two lines on a Tide commercial, like that's not being an artist. Like, that's that's <laughs> yeah. making money with your body, right? Like, but I was just seeing other artists uh, who were guests at, our, uh, at my campus at UCLA were making their own work. And, and it wasn't just theater, here's a script, I'm gonna say the script, but it was just like really kind of fun, inventive, like watching site-specific work was really exciting, watching, devised work was really exciting and I didn't know what the hell I was doing when I was like I'm gonna write a show like how the fuck do you do that because there are classes where you can learn to make a show and I don't really do multi-character shows if you've noticed like I, <laughs> I kind of hate that format yeah. yeah so that I mean a lot of it was just like this interest in wanting to invert space and kind of point out how everyone is performing at all times wow and uh and just sort of, I mean, this is my fascination with reality TV, right? Is like, I love watching it as a form of performance. Like, how are these people able to fall in love, like genuinely on this very specific episode timeline? I'm watching The Bachelorette right now, by the way. I'm going to go back to watching that when this is over. <laughs> and immediately like see this person and like, like what is it about that competition and that game? And But also being watched that allows that to happen. And I just find it that really fascinating not necessarily invested in their joy, but just sort of the the weirdness of this format of them finding love, but also being our entertainment at the same time. It's just so weird. Super weird. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I'm just fascinated by that as a performance artist and want to continually like challenge and invert that. When I dropped out of art school in the early 2000s, I started my project Ming and Ping. And it was out of frustration. Um, well, it was a reaction to celebrity boy bands that were, are assembled in a factory-like setting, right? And um, sync mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And I think that's sort of when it started. Is like like those bands, those those a lot of those boy bands were very much like generated. Yeah, yeah. You know, but the, my project was born because I honestly didn't think Asians in America had a market, which is a sad thing for me to think at that time. <laughs> Uh, you know, which is why I made mm. these identical twins from Hong Kong who are like over the top looking and they're kind of ambiguously gay because they're twins, but they're holding hands in this this key photo that I made. And, you know, that caught on during the MySpace days and, and kind of went, became a meme before memes were a thing. That's always going to be reality, right, for, for creators like us to, to react to things that we feel kind of crappy about in society. But uh, for the next generation of creators, how do you think they should or do you encourage kind of that action, that approach to, to art? To hacking everything? No, I'm, I mean, I, I definitely took a step back from it. And I don't, I, by running for office in the sense of like, oh, I think we hacked everything to death. And when I watch a lot of these YouTube videos, they're just like performance art experiments from the late nineties. It feels like, like watch me uh, throw a bunch of Mentos into a Sprite. See what happens. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna surround an app, a, a rabbit, my pet rabbit with carrots. See what happens. Because it's unclear where the stage is anymore, right? There's so many, basically all of our interactions, especially during this pandemic are mediated 
they happen yeah. through screens, right? So we're already performing and framing ourselves in a sense. Like, right, I was about to start this interview with you at 10 a.m. Realized, oh, it's a video interview too? Give me 45 <laughs> minutes. Now I have my costume on, right? I don't want to be like that old lady that's like, back in my day. But I do think I can't wait to um, just have interactions in yes. person. <laughs> that with, with, like, no bullshit. That we can just get back to emotions and not performance and, and making impressions, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to a, a, long, a long renaissance after this of performance that's just live bodies. I just I can't wait to watch dance. I don't want to watch any performance that has a screen. Like I, <laughs> I just want to see like actors on stage. No, and I do a lot of performances with screens behind me, right? But like I'm like, I just want to see people. Spaces. Yeah, I hope, like you say, the the renaissance after this is just there's going to be so much cool stuff that comes out of it. Just a reaction to this oppressive vibe that we've had for the last nine months and soon to be a year, I guess. <laughs> so I was going to ask mm -hmm. you um, to kind of wrap up the conversation. Uh, a lot of creatives create their work in kind of a vacuum of an art environment, but your your projects run like parallel with real life and have major impacts on real life and. I was wondering if you can offer me any advice as I'm creating new work to give a little bit of insight into your process about conceiving these ideas and, and how to kind of plan or react to how they impact real life. Because you're kind of like the superstar of that. Hmm. Oh, thanks, Bao. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna, I'm gonna put you in my will. What would you like from my house? What would you like from my house in my will? Um, this I had to learn over time, right, is is to, to sort of develop a piece in steps and in stages. Uh, in the before times, I would maybe, like with Christina Wong for public office, it wasn't like, boom, I'm going to do this big crazy speech. It was like I was offered, t uh, can you do 20 minutes at this event? Okay, great. Let me work out something at this event. Like I'll give a speech or I'll give a... I'll debate a dog or I'll just, you know, I was just trying to work out little things <laughs> oh and then I would cobble. And I think this is how stand-up comedians also do it. I don't consider myself a stand-up, but like, you know, they go to open mic and they work out like a few new jokes. Okay. And then they'll take it to the laugh factory. Right. So sweatshop overlords a little different because time is just moving so crazy, but the audience is much more forgiving. So I'm just like premiering full length shows every time that are changing every time. Yeah. And we just try to crazy. preface it before and after with like, this is happening during the pandemic. It's about the pandemic. It's going to switch, uh, but try to set up expectations in a way so that people aren't like, that looks so unpolished. Or what the fuck oh, was that? Interesting. Or like, yeah. why are there 200 people watching such a messy piece? Or like, that was the yeah. show. But as far as reacting, I, I'm in, I guess I'm a news junkie. So I watch a lot of news and I, and I think about it, if you imagine that I'm so obsessed with reality TV that I watch everything in the context of it, that I actually watch The Apprentice, right? I obsessively, obsess I watched every episode of that. And so I can actually take you through how we got from Flavor of Love, Rock of Love, Shot at Love with Tila Tequila, The Apprentice. I could take you through that whole timeline to where we are now as a nation. And it's blowing my mind that that Trump is basically still performing like a reality TV star. Yeah, absolutely. He's still except he has no producers. Like, I mean, he has his people around him, but he doesn't have a, he's his own story producer. They're all interns. And so he's trying to just like drop those zingers, right? And the same kind of zingers that would normally show up in a trailer or whatever, he, he does that. And so I think a lot of that fascination and that lens 
is how I look at stuff and how I'm responding to it in my own work as also a failed reality TV star. Like I'm, I'm going, Oh, I see what he's trying to do here. He's trying to drop the bombshell, the plot twist. So like, you know, <laughs> so yeah. the pandemic has given us a lot of time to stew around, you know, ourselves and what we can improve either technically or personally. What's something that you're working on right now to, to level up on Chris, Christina Wong, the next generation. Just trying to get a sweatshop going. I, I uh, subscribe to Cantonese class 101. Uh, oh, wow. That actually helped me develop a lot more peace in my life is learning Chinese again. And I had kept thinking I had to go into a classroom to do it. But Cantonese is a very hard language in general, but, but very hard to find classroom settings to learn it. And I found a podcast a few years ago and I actually took to it quite well. Like, um, so I'm learning, I'm getting back into just hearing it again. And that's so um, awesome. I love that. That's all I'm doing. Otherwise I'm just like working like a mofo in this house. You know, sometimes I totally feel you because I, sometimes I don't have the vocabulary to have deeper conversations with my mom in Vietnamese, you know, and, um, it's such mm -hmm. a weird feeling, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. good luck with Cantonese. Good luck with your upcoming shows. Uh, Thanks. Your past work is awesome. I'm, I'm an admirer, and um, I want to show the audience your little image again so they can see your website. Christina Wong is at ChristinaWong.com, and that's K-R-I-S-T-I-N-A-W-O-N-G.com. And her new show is called Christina Wong, Sweatshop Overlord. Christina, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. I really appreciate you just spending time and having like a really interesting course, like human conversation because because like you were saying interviews are about like, "Whoa, what's your new work? What's your project like?" But like I am curious about you as a person and I think that this conversation really made me happy to learn a little bit more about you as a as a person. So, thank you. And I had no idea you live so close. So now I can actually run into you at places. Yeah. <laughs> I go to downtown a lot in the before times. So we can, well, we can, let's, we can kick. It. Awesome. Uh, cool. Don't hang up. I'm going to give a little outro and then I'll come back and say a proper goodbye to you. All right. Okay, great. You guys, thank you for coming to hang out with us during coffee with Bao. I really appreciate it. If you like the show, I just want you to share it with people because why else am I making all this stuff, right? <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for tuning in to Coffee with Bao. If you enjoy the show and want to support me financially, you can buy me a coffee at coffeewithbao.com. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Bye. You want to see our beautiful mugs while we chat? Coffee with Bao is also available in video. Just search for it on YouTube and hit the subscribe button.